0: We're working through the three classic rapture timing views. And we spent several months actually, because it's the most complicated one, on the pre-trib rapture, both the strengths and the challenges to it biblically. And then last time, because the mid-trib is much, much more simple, uh, we did in a whole time the strengths and weaknesses of the mid-trib. And uh, before we begin begin the post-trib view, I just want to make sure everybody's on the same page, and in fact you have this timing grid uh, in your handout this week. And there's going to come a point where the pre-trib, uh, uh, if the pre-trib proponents are correct, that literally out of the blue, uh, the uh, they would say the things like, you know, twinkling of an eye, all of a sudden, boom. And as, as you see, the the two um, at the mill and the two who are in the field, and it's a regular old work day. Nothing obvious has happened. There's no uh, you don't have world news like the temple's been rebuilt in Jerusalem. Just boom out of the blue, uh, this happens, uh, and that's the strength that the pre-tribs uh, uh, rapture view would say that they have is that Jesus can come at any moment. That the next thing that's going to happen is Jesus comes for the church. Um, but um, what happens then is sometime after that the peace the peace treaty is signed. It's a it's a fake peace treaty. It's a Messiah with a little M that comes to save Israel, and in fact. If you put all the Old Testament texts together, you realize Israel will be completely taken and think this is our Messiah. Um, those who don't f- follow Jesus. And what happens is you enter then the first half of the seven years uh, with seven seal judgments and seven trumpet judgments. And then at the midpoint, uh, this being in chap the pre-trib picture of John being caught up. The pre-tribbers say in chapter four of Revelation is the picture of the rapture. At the mid-trib, you have chapter 11 talking about these the two witnesses who are killed and then they're resurrected and they're caught up into heaven. And the mid-trib rapture view believes that that's a picture of the mid-trib rapture at the middle uh, when the abomination of desolation occurs. And and as Jesus preached, uh, I like his verbiage that there will be tribulation, and then comes the abomination of desolation as spoken of by the prophet Daniel, literally Jesus' text from the Old Testament as he preaches in Matthew 24, and he then uh, says, and after that there will be great tribulation as has never occurred on the earth. So I like, <laughs> pretty pretty good scholar to follow, I like Jesus' terminology, that you get the seven the seven years is the tribulation but after the abomination of desolation the second half is the great tribulation and then you get these unbelievably horrendous bowl judgments and by the end of the bowl judgments half of the world is dead it's just an incredible horrible time uh, and then right near the end you get the uh, the the harlot of Babylon which almost for sure is the apostate church who has followed after the false uh, messiah uh, that it is judged, and then the city of Babylon, which whether it's in modern-day Iraq or someplace else uh, in the in the uh, Europe or the Middle East, uh, we don't know for sure. But that the that the Babylon itself is probably the seat of world power. That the Antichrist is over, and then at the end, the post-trib view, which we're going to deal with tonight, is where it's uh, believed by the post-trib proponents that in one big, very complex second coming. You get Jesus first coming in the clouds, resurrecting the uh, the dead saints who precede those who then are changed from live these old bodies to live resurrected eternal bodies, caught up with Jesus, and then come down with Jesus and the angels to win the battle of Armageddon uh, and then uh, help him go into the millennium as he sets up his millennial reign. So, um, So tonight we're going to start dealing with the with the post-trib view, um, and uh, I want to, uh, before we turn to that, I, I want to start with the arguments uh, for this, this, this view. Before we start with the arguments of this view, I want us to understand how consequential this eschatology is. I want you to think about the church with reference to this seven years. So think about it. Here's your first blanks tonight in your notes, and go ahead and write it in. The key concept is, if the pre-trib view is right, then the church will be removed before the horrors of the tribulation. But if the post-trib view is correct, believers of the last generation will experience them, and multitudes will die from refusing to take the mark. Remember at the Abomination of Desolation, after that you get the 666 Mark of the Beast campaign, and if you won't take the mark... You either starve to death or if they catch you, you're beheaded for the faith. So let me say those again since there were so many blanks. If the pre-trib view is right, then the church will be removed before the horrors of the tribulation. But if the post-trib view is correct, believers of the last generation will experience them and multitudes will die from refusing to take the mark. So, it's nearly impossible to overstate, nearly impossible to overstate how significant the timing of the rapture will be for those who follow Christ in the last generation. Think about that. The difference is that Jesus, in an instant, just takes the church on a regular old day when people are at work. And and, uh, in a relative sense, although there's persecution today all over the world, nothing like what will happen during the seven years, but if the post-trib is correct, that the church, many, many millions undoubtedly, will die for the faith um, by refusing to take the mark. So all of these horrendous things will happen. So this is a big deal. Um, And so now we're ready to turn to the strengths of the post-trib view, which again, notice on your grid, means that the church lives through the tribulation. Lives really and dies. uh, Because clearly if you're a true believer in Christ, you will not take the mark. And then of course you're at a Huge risk. Um, So let's start with strength number one. Here's your blanks. Strength number one of the post-trib view, remember, one coming at the end as a complex get the church and come down and win the battle of Armageddon and set up the kingdom. Uh, Strength number one, its simplicity and its natural effortless consistency with the biblical understanding of a first coming, which of course happened in AD 32, and a second coming of Christ. Let me write that in again. It's simplicity and its natural effortless consistency with the biblical understanding of a first coming and a second coming of Christ. One first coming, one second coming. And the scripture, um, and the historic creeds, of course, and two millennia of Christian theology affirm that Christ will return. Independent of which rapture view, we know that Jesus is coming back. And the Revelation announces this in chapter 1. Listen to this magnificent verse. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. So over and over again, the Old Testament looks forward to an awesome day called the Day of the Lord and anticipates a cataclysmic event When God will come to earth and make the nations his footstool and then will rule with perfect power as a perfect king. And he will save his people and set everything right. By the way, you don't need a a word of New Testament to have that entire proper second coming, second advent theology just from the Old Testament. And even a cursory reading of the biblical text yields a clear picture of the glorious appearing of Jesus And given what seems to be a simple elegance of the concept of Christ returning to do this all at once, to save those who love him and to conquer and vanquish those who hate him, it should take a pervasive and explicit biblical theme to knock anyone off of the concept that someday in the future, there's a day fixed and when Christ will return and culminate all of human history and set up his perfect kingdom to reign in power, from the earth. So the post-tribbers would say it's just really simple. Jesus is going to come back and at the same time fulfill the promises to the church and then save Israel from annihilation and uh, do all of the things that happens at his second coming. And with this background it's easy to see. Ready? Write this in. Here's your next blank. A problem for the pre-trib view according to the post-trib advocates. So here's what the post-tribbers would say is a problem for the pre-tribbers. Ready? Here's your blanks. In essence, if pre-trib is right, in essence, there's a second and third coming of Christ, right? So the post-tribbers would say, wait a second, the church has never taught that Jesus is coming three times. The church has always taught that he's coming, coming. he came, and now he's coming one more time. So the post-tribbers would say, wait a second, this is really the second coming, and this is the third coming when everyone through all of history has believed no, this is the second coming of Christ. This is when he wins the battle, saves the elect of Israel, uh, who are who the few who the remnant who's then still alive and sets up his kingdom. So I think they have a good, strong argument there um, that basically there's two future comings of Jesus. And because of this, the post tribbers believe that the pre trib view is made up. They think it's just wishful thinking and that it detracts from the simple understanding that in one single cataclysmic event at the end of the tribulation, Christ will return for his church, save Israel from destruction, and defeat Antichrist and his armies. So the post-trib proponents believe that it's, weak, it's a weakness of the pre-trib view that they functionally believe in two second comings, if you will. So... Strength number two. Here's your blanks. The only place Christ explicitly returns to Earth in the Book of Revelation is in chapter 19, at the end of the tribulation. Here's one text in Revelation that the one the one text that clearly describes Jesus coming to the Earth. Look at it's in your notes, and I saw in heaven open from chapter 19, of course, and behold, a white horse, and he who "...sat upon it is faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that he will strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him, who sat on the horse and against his army." And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet, who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast, and those who worshipped his image. These two, meaning the Antichrist, the beast, and the false prophet, these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. And the rest were killed, meaning all of the armies that have come to destroy God's people and to try to fight against Jesus. The rest were killed with the sword, which came from the mouth of him who sat upon the horse. So the post-trib proponents rightly point out that this is the only place in Revelation where Jesus explicitly returns to earth. And it's the very end of the tribulation. And here's what they point out to the corollary of this strength. Ready? Here's your blank. Here's the corollary: the pre-trib view from Revelation 24, where John is caught. Here's a voice, a trumpet, and is caught up. A pre-trib picture of the rapture, and the mid-trib at Revelation 11. Right, the the resurrection and catching into heaven of the two, the two uh, witnesses. The pre-trib and mid-trib pictures of the rapture have John and the two witnesses being called up into heaven, but not Christ coming down to earth to get them. So again, this would be what the post-tribbers would say is a a problem, a limitation, if you will, uh, uh, for the pre-trib view. Thus, the post-tribbers say that these events don't qualify to be Christ coming back for his church. Strength number three. It's most consistent, here's your blanks, it's most consistent with the natural flow of Jesus' Olivet Discourse. And to show how strong this argument is, I want us to read through the parts of the Olivet Discourse to pay attention to exactly how it unfolds. Let's read this together. Remember, this is Jesus. This is the kingpin passage of the text of all of Scripture because this is Jesus preaching about his own second coming. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, thus called the Olivet Discourse, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us. When will these things happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened for those things must take place but that is not yet the end. And notice now Jesus starts the last seven years. They will deliver you to tribulation and so, right, tribulation the the seven years and will kill you and you will be hated by all the nations because of my name. Therefore, When you see the abomination of desolation which was spoken through Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, Jesus now literally talking right out of Daniel chapter 9, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains, for then there will be great tribulation. Thus, why I like the natural Jesus usage of the tribulation for the whole seven years and the Great tribulation for the second half, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will, but immediately after the tribulation of those days, so it's the end of the seven years. So here's Jesus preaching about his own second coming at the end of the seven years. Notice immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the, heaven, uh, from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And notice this sentence now. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. Notice the clarity with which Jesus answers the disciples' question about his return at the end of the age. He says, wars and rumors of wars, but that's not yet the end. Then tribulation begins, then the abomination of desolation occurs at the midpoint, and then the great tribulation ensues, and then finally, at the end of the tribulation, heaven and earth are shaken, Christ appears in the sky, the whole world mourns in awe of the mighty conquering king, and he gathers God's people from all over the world, the four ends of the sky. So, in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus gathers believers as a part of a second coming event at the end of the tribulation. And this nicely sets up strength number four of the post-trib view, The gathering of the elect in Matthew 24 is a very plausible description of the rapture, right? What we just read, (laughs) listen, it really, really fits pretty nicely, doesn't it? So let's look at several points from Matthew 24 that support the post-trib timing. Point number one, in Revelation, here's your blanks, the pre-trib and mid-trib pictures. Remember chapter four, John being caught up? Chapter 11, the witnesses being caught up. So the pre- and mid-trib pictures in Revelation are an inference. right? It's John and its two witnesses. It's not the elect from all over the world. It's those three individuals. Or it's an inference while in Matthew 24, the gathering of the elect from all over the world at the end of the tribulation is explicit. It's explicit in Jesus' teaching. Point number two. The gathering, here's your blank, the gathering of the elect clearly happens at the end of the tribulation in the Olivet Discourse. Look at it again, verses 30 and 31. It's in your text. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Clearly this is the second coming at the end of the tribulation. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. So here's What the post-trib view believes the Olivet Discourse teaches. This is uh, your next blanks. What the Olivet Discourse teaches about the rapture from the post-trib view. Ready? The gathering of the elect that occurs simultaneously with Jesus' glorious appearing. Right? Right there at the end. Those magnificent, here he comes with power and great glory. It happens simultaneously with Jesus' glorious appearing at the end of the tribulation is the rapture of the church. That's what the post-tribbers believe is taught by Jesus in the Olivet Discourse. Point number three. The elect clearly go through the entire tribulation. What a bummer. (laughs) I mean, right? The elect clearly go through, at this point, established several times, right? We just heard that they're present at the end of the tribulation. But, you know, Jesus also tells it that the elect will be there at the middle of the tribulation. Look from Matthew 24. Look at your text. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains For then there will be great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will, unless, look at this, unless those days had been cut short. This is pretty ominous. No life would have been saved, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. So there's no question that the elect go through the tribulation. Now I want to just stop for just a minute. Because some of you were pre-trib for the eight weeks that I taught on the strengths of the pre-trib. And then last week you were mid-trib because you liked the the strengths of the mid-trib. But tonight it sounds like, wow, I think I'm post-trib. And in a couple more sessions, I'm going to tell you why I think God has left three teachings for centuries in the Orthodox Church. Something so important, why in the world would there be so many proponents with the same scripture, the same infilling of the Holy Spirit, the same Christian doctrine, the same history, and yet there's these three things that you can talk yourself into any of the three? Why would God do that? I'll come back to that for an entire session when we end this, but um, for now, just let this sink in. The question. There's no question the elect goes through the entire tribulation, so now let's stop take a step back and notice that there's an assumption that must be made that underlies each of these points from the post-trib view. You ready? Write it in. The post-trib understanding of the timing of the rapture in the Olivet Discourse requires a specific interpretation. Matthew 24, in Matthew 24, when Jesus refers to the elect, he means the church. That's the That's the, uh, the the post-tribulations are mandating that the elect is the church. And this means that strength number four, the one that we're looking at right now, hangs on a particular interpretation of scripture. And so, to see how strong this claim is, we need to evaluate how well this particular way of interpreting the text holds up, right? Is the elect the church or is the elect someone else? And so first we need to look at a fundamental principle of biblical interpretation. Here's your blank. This is important actually for every believer to know. It's important to carefully evaluate the context of a biblical passage. Never lift stuff out and create a doctrine by itself from the lift. Right? It's important to carefully evaluate the context of a biblical passage and really important that we are not very good at because it's hard work. And attempt to interpret the scripture through the eyes and ears of the original listeners. Jesus was preaching to 12 people when he answered this question. You see, this is really important to remember. So, who were the original lead, uh, listeners at the Olivet Discourse? Here's your blank. It was the disciples. In fact, it says, and they went to him privately. So we know exactly the 12 people that we were were listening to this. And you're ready. Who would these listeners have interpreted the elect to be? Ah, Israel, of course. They would have thought, oh, well, the elect, of course, chosen since Abraham, chosen since Jacob, the chosen, the elect, this is Israel. And notice several things. The text clearly states that Jesus' disciples were the original audience. And notice something else. The church wasn't even around yet. They had absolutely no knowledge of what God was going to launch at Pentecost. So the concept of the church was entirely unknown to the original listeners. Rather, every bit of their religious understanding would have been directly out of the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, the elect were the Israelites. So when Jesus was telling them about what would happen at the end of the age and what would happen during the future tribulation and what would happen at the end of the tribulation, he would come in power and great glory to gather the elect. Guess what the only conceivable interpretation could have been of those 12 Jewish disciples? They would have said, oh, he's coming for the elect of Israel. Everyone who believes All over the world from Israel, who now, no matter where they've been dispersed, Jesus comes back and brings them to himself. So, the first principle of good hermeneutics is to attempt to interpret the scripture through the eyes of the original listeners. And now we're ready to see the relevance of the second principle of good biblical interpretation, making sure that we carefully evaluate the context of a biblical passage so look again in matthew 24 here's your text therefore when you see the abomination of desolation which was spoken out of through the prophet daniel isn't this interesting then those who are in judea you don't get any more israelite than that right this is the precious line of judah from which jesus came Let those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains, and then there will be a great tribulation as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will be. And unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, guess where from? Judea. The elect from Judea, the days will be cut short. So this gives us two... Hermeneutic facts or interpretive facts about Matthew 24. Ready? Fact number one, the listeners would have interpreted the elect to be Jewish believers. Nothing else would have ever crossed their mind. Fact number two, the context of the passage clearly identifies at least some of the elect as being Jewish. They're literally from Judea. And now we have the background to understand how the proponents of the pre-trib view interpret this passage very differently. And they don't believe that the gathering of the elect at the end of the tribulation is the same event as the rapture of the church. So it's the pre-trib interpretation of Matthew 24. And now you're getting both. So once again, I don't bring a system to you. I'm trying to help us unpack the challenges that the church has dealt with for centuries over these complicated issues. You ready? Here's your first blanks. The Olivet Discourse was spoken to Jews and is about Israel. And they have a very strong hermeneutic or interpretive stand, don't they? It's spoken to people who are going to flee from Judea to 12 Jewish people. (laughs) Then, notice next, thus when Jesus spoke of the elect... It was the Old Testament understanding of God's chosen people. Let me say that again. When Jesus spoke of the elect, it was the Old Testament understanding of God's chosen people and was not referring to the church. And then finally, this squares perfectly with Romans chapter 11. Remember what Paul says, And in that day, when the times of the Gentiles have come to their fullness, when he returns in power and great glory, all Israel will be Saved, that's in the New Testament. Absolutely, look at it again in Romans 11 and Zechariah 12, that all the families of, of the, the Jewish people who have made it to the ends they will see the one whom they pierced and they will mourn and repent. So this is completely consistent according to the pre view. Ready? So this squares perfectly with Romans 11 and Zechariah 12, where the remnant of Israel is saved. At the return of Christ at the end of the tribulation okay so you can see the pre-tribbers are saying this is still very consistent with the church being taken out before the tribulation and Israel and its remnant being the elect at the end of the tribulation strength number five (laughs) those who really want the pre-trib view to be to be uh, true boy are you are you glad for those caveats huh strength number five when taken alone and at face value The Olivet Discourse makes it look like the followers of Christ will go through the tribulation and be taken to heaven after Christ returns. Right? When taken alone at face value, it sure sounds convincing. Jesus comes back and he gathers the elect from the four corners of the earth. And in fact, many post-trib proponents have said that the Olivet Discourse is all you need to understand Christ's return and the rapture. By the way... Don't ever join any movement, I'm not talking now about orthodoxy and so forth, but don't ever join any movement that says, all you need from the scripture is one passage to nail something down. Don't ever follow anyone like that. See, this statement is out of touch with the historical theological approach to any biblical question. Saying that you only need one passage, like Matthew chapter 24, it came from Jesus, But remember, all of the word comes from Jesus, whether it's his words or not. Notice, in order to understand the timing of the rapture and the second coming, to say all you need is Matthew 24 is a bit like saying that John 3.16 is the only passage you need to understand the biblical theology of salvation. It's not. There are thousands of texts that as one are the word of God about salvation. And that's an untenable way to view Scripture. Biblical truth comes from integrating the whole Word of God, not just cherry-picking single texts. And in fact, many heresies emerge in the church when they begin from a single biblical text. So look at strength number five again. Look what you wrote in. When taken alone and at face value, the Olivet Discourse makes it look like the followers of Christ go through the Tribulation and are taken to heaven After Jesus returns that is true, but here's the response by the pre-trib Advocates and they are theologically grounded in a statement like this Notice no scripture should be taken alone let alone scripture Related to something as complex as the timing of the rapture since these are there are myriads of passages about the return of Christ they point out that no single passage, not even the Olivet Do- Discourse, can be taken by itself to be the definitive passage. Rather, they contend that all of the pertinent texts must be taken together to identify the most accurate biblical view. So tonight, we've worked through the strengths of the post view, and in our next session, we'll look at some of the weaknesses and problems of the post view, but for the rest of tonight, For these last few minutes, I'd like to turn to our application. So here's your blanks. Here's our application. As you know, we always go to application. We don't want this just to be eschatology. Ready? Regardless of which timing view ends up being right, the rapture has profound implications related to salvation and whether God is a capricious, a capricious judge. Some of this is going to be a bit mind-bending, but I'm gonna do it in a fun way, I think. I've mentioned before that when we study eschatology, we tend to focus on the signs of the times and chronological systems and prophecies about the details of what's gonna happen in the future. But tonight, I'd like to take a few minutes to focus on the fact that regardless of whether you're pre-trib, mid-trib, or post-trib, there are some incredibly important implications that are inherent to the discussion of the rapture event itself, whenever it happens. And this is the case because when the rapture happens, think about it, those who are saved will be caught up by Christ to eternal life. Those beautiful passages, those gorgeous passages of in the twinkling of an eye, We will see him, and then we'll we'll know him as he really is. Just incredible pictures of what will happen when Jesus comes for his bride. So notice, those who know Jesus at the rapture will be saved, but those who are left behind are lost. And now to begin to unpack tonight's application, I'd like to remind us of a significant theological divide in the church that creates an enormous branch point in this discussion. As you'll see, in the context of the rapture, it shocks the mind depending upon which theological view of God's salvation plan you hold. So let me begin with a super brief review of the Reformed and the Arminian views of the biblical doctrine of election. By the way, if you attend Renovation Church, you know that I preach two messages on this on July 17th and July 24th and I would refer those to you where I really dive deeply into the issues of election and, and uh, the concept of limited uh, atonement, et cetera. And so I would refer you there. Um, so, but I, and because of that, I'm not gonna go deeply into it, but here's, here's what I do want to do just for a quick snapshot tonight. Uh, Here's the definition of unconditional election from Reformed theology, and and this is also known as Calvinism. Uh, And this definition, by the way, comes right out of the Westminster Confession, which is one of the great confessions of the Reformed uh, Protestant Church. Ready? Here's Here's your blanks. By the decree of God and for the manifestation of his own glory, some humans and angels are predestined unto eternal life and others foreordained to everlasting death. And this concept has been repeated in many different forms uh, out of thousands that I could uh, take from statements by Reformed theologians. I've just picked a couple. Look at Edwin Palmer's statement. All things are ordained by God, including sin and unbelief. Thus, God has ordained who will be unbelievers. And from Henry Sheldon, God foreordained that the fall would involve beyond any chance of rescue The eternal ruin and damnation of the majority of the human race. And now let me give you, just for the brief, that's a a brief snapshot of reformed concept on this. Now let me give you the Arminian understanding of the biblical doctrine of election. Ready, write it in. I'll read it twice because there's four blanks. Look, at: in the Old Testament, God elected Israel. And in the New Testament, God elected the church. And... The purpose of election in both covenants is for the elect to help him save the whole world. Don't ever forget what God said to Abraham. The reason why I'm saving you and blessing you, the reason why I've come to you is so that all the families of the earth may be blessed in you. God's always been a missionary God. So notice this is the Arminian understanding. Look at in now what you've written. In the Old Testament, God elected Israel. And in the New Testament, God elected the church. And the purpose of election in both covenants is for the elect to help him save the whole world. And now we're ready to see why I've gone through these concepts from salvation theology. Look again at our application. Regardless of which timing view ends up being right, The rapture has profound implications, doesn't it? Related to salvation and whether God is a capricious judge. And now I'd like to transport us forward to sometime in the future. It could be tonight, tomorrow. It could be next year or next century. No one knows the day. But there is a day fixed by the Father And whenever it happens, regardless of which rapture view you espouse, at some point, Jesus will come for the church. And when he comes for the church, he'll also come for the children, and the infants, and the babies, and the little tiny ones still inside mama. But wait, wait. If the doctrine of unconditional election and double predestination that God has predestined not just the eternal life, but also who will not have eternal life. If unconditional election and double predestination are right, then some children and infants and babies will be taken to be with the Lord, but the majority of them will be left to their eternal doom. Why? Because if they weren't elected, then they're predestined to eternal separation from God. But now think about this scenario. Let's go, by the way, in, being in emergency medicine, stuff like this occurs to you all the time. Let's go to the maternity ward at the time of the rapture. Let's say the labor and delivery unit has 10 mothers in labor when ra- the rapture occurs. If unconditional election is true, then perhaps only one or two of the babies will disappear while all of the others will go on to be delivered and to live until they receive their eternal punishment. Because that is God's plan for them. And perhaps one of the moms will be ready to deliver triplets. But amazingly, she'll only deliver two babies. And the astonished doctor that can't find the third baby will quickly, quickly go to an ultrasound to find out that indeed, before labor, there's a third baby to deliver. And then they'll look again at the pre-delivery ultrasound and they'll go back and forth. Two babies. Now we ultrasound mama's womb because I don't trust my physical exam to make sure I'm not missing a baby. And there's no baby in there. And a few minutes before, there were three babies. By the way, my mom, who's gone home to be with the Lord, would listen to stuff like this and say, Daniel, whoever thinks of things like this? And the bottom line is, when you're in emergency medicine and you've seen everything you think about stuff like this so notice with me if unconditional election is correct then the one that vanished will be saved and the ones who are still around to be delivered are lost and think about this let's say mom is elect but baby isn't imagine The doc is scrubbing for the delivery, all of a sudden the nurse, completely pale, walks into the scrub room utterly speechless and shows the doctor the baby that all of a sudden was left lying on the delivery table as mom's body vanished, leaving only the placenta and the baby behind. And. All over the world, children will run to their parents and frantically announce that their sibling or their friend has disappeared, and the ones who are left behind will finally, in the end, come to their eternal doom because God's eternal purpose for them was separation. And now you can see why the coming event of the rapture has such staggering theological implications regardless of when it happens. Because it's an incredibly poignant time when the momentous impact of the two major doctrinal views of salvation will be most clearly differentiated. So I want to point out that the theology of the rapture points to a theological implication that's far more important and profound than the theology of the rapture. And let me add one more doctrine that has incredible implications. There are some in the broader church who believe in the doctrine of baptismal regeneration. Baptismal regeneration means that they believe that it's the act of baptism that saves a person. The uh, churches from this tradition almost always do infant baptism, and the reason is because they want to make sure that the baby doesn't die before they're baptized because they're lost if they aren't baptized. Because remember, it's in the baptism that you get the spiritual regeneration. So now let's think about this doctrine in relation to the rapture. How capricious is this? If you happen to have been born and baptized yesterday (laughs) and the rapture happens today, then you're saved. But if you've been delivered today, and they're ready to baptize you, but the, but the pastor or the elder or the priest coming to baptize you gets a flat tire, and the rapture happens first, then you're lost. And it can even be even more random and capricious than that. Maybe your mother is scheduled for a C-section electively today, but your OB doc got sick. And let's say they reschedule it for two days from now, but the rapture happens tomorrow. And so, if your doctor wasn't sick today, you'd have been born and baptized and saved, but instead, tomorrow, you're still in the womb, unbaptized, and you're lost. So now let's cycle back to our theological views of salvation. Again, I'll refer you back to renovationphx.com on the 17th and the 24th of July for the full kind of unpacking of this. Here's what the Arminian uh, view believes. Lots Lots of blanks, but I want you to let this soak in. Look at this. Ready? Write them in. The doctrine of the age of accountability, which flows from the Arminian view. Every human who has ever been conceived is under the saving grace of God and is covered by the blood of Christ until they come to the age when they can either accept or reject his grace. Look what you just wrote in. Every human who has ever been conceived is under the saving grace of God and is covered by the blood of Christ until they come to the age when they can either accept or reject God's grace. So Arminians believe in the doctrine of the age of accountability, but the other traditions that I've talked about hold that children who aren't elected or who haven't been baptized are eternally lost. So as we finish I'd like to personalize this. The doctrine of the age of accountability is an incredible expression of God's saving grace. Isn't God good? Every one of those babies have come under original sin, but the blood of Jesus, we believe, covers them completely. It shows how impartial and wise and fair and loving and saving our God is. But here's what it also means. I assume everyone who will watch and listen to this lesson has come to the age of accountability. <laughs> and that means that God has given us the amazing gift of the ability to freely choose to love him back as he has loved us first. It's all of grace. Grace. We can't do it on our own, but he's loved every one of us first, and he's given us the amazing hope and joy of freely loving him back. So let me ask you, what are you doing with God's grace that's freely offered to you? What are you doing with a God who loves you with an infinite love, and has not predestined you to be separated from him, but has made a way and paid the price for your eternal life. What are you doing with that grace? Are you squandering it? Or ignoring it? Or throwing it away? Or assuming, assuming that you'll always have time to respond to his offer someday? By the way, How can you have that thought if you're paying any attention to the concept of the rapture? Because Jesus said, on a regular old average day, one is gone like that. As if you will always know. That is an assumption which is a fool's errand. And if you've accepted God's saving grace, let me ask you, are you now on a mission to spread the message the message of God, the message of love and mercy and the gospel everywhere you go? Are you looking around and realizing that God wants to save every single person you meet? I've told Arminians often, you've not taken the easy route. If you actually believe God wants to save everyone, then what are we waiting for? Everyone we come in contact with, is a person for whom Jesus has a plan to save them. And guess who the plan includes? Us. Are you responding to God's amazing grace by freely allowing him to fill you with his spirit so that your life is a fragrant aroma? And are you allowing that fragrance to spread the love of Christ to every single person around you? Let's step back and take one more look at where we've come tonight. We've affirmed how incredible the grace of God is. Listen to how the apostle Peter says it. First in Acts chapter 10, look at this, it's in your notes. I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. That's right, every baby gets raptured. He doesn't show partiality. He covers everyone who hasn't come to the age of accountability, ready? But in every nation, those who fear him Uh, The one who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. And then Peter again, look at this in 2 Peter chapter 3. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Praise his holy name. And so, if you agree with these truths, if you agree with the doctrine that God desires to save everyone, then let me ask you, What are you doing about it? Let's pray. Well, Lord, maybe not everyone watching knows you, but right now, tonight, I pray for those who are watching and do know you. Lord, is all of my life about your mission? Everything I am, everything I have, every contact I make, at work, at school, at the grocery store, (laughs) when I'm tipping at the restaurant, when I'm thinking about people, when I think about my enemies, Lord, you want me to bleed drops of blood in my spirit for them because they are lost. Because you said, pick up your cross. That's how you save the world. It's mysterious to us, Lord. We know there's nothing saving in us, and yet somehow you want to use us to help you save your world.